0: Thank you, guys. God bless you. Hey, I I just think in this day, God is raising up sincere, genuine, humble believers, pastors and leaders. And I just want to honor uh, Pastor Mark and Pastor Mark Anthony and Sam. There's just a purity in this house, a sincerity um, that I really believe the church has had enough of showmanship. I think the church has had enough of adrenaline, and we need anointing, and there's a delineation there. We need sincere, pure streams to flow, and I just honor your leadership. They're, they're good friends to me and gracious, and, and you're a blessed house. I want to speak to you this morning from John chapter 1, so go ahead and turn your Bible there. If you brought an electric Bible, that's sin. Just so you know, we call that sin. I'm teasing. I told Pastor Mark Anthony that I've been preaching Mark um, since January. So, I don't know, seven months of Mark. I'm thankful today to be in John. Praise God. Let's pray over the word. So, Father, in Jesus' most beautiful and precious name, we come before you. We're blood-bought people. Father, we celebrate the cross this morning, the grace of the Father. We ask in Jesus' mighty name that your word would go forth We ask for the anointing of the Holy Ghost upon us. Lord, would you give us pure hearts, soft hearts, good soil to receive the word? Lord, we pray this morning that we would decrease and Christ Jesus would increase in this region. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you'd make us better disciples of Jesus. We want to leave this place looking and sounding like Christ Jesus in your beautiful name, somebody say amen. Well, Martin Luther, when he was still a monk, if you've ever read anything about Luther, he was highly devoted. He, they always laugh, biographers always talk about, he, um, he would come to his confessor and just wear them out. He would confess every sin, every thought, every negative emotion he ever had for hours and hours and hours. He would just confess and confess and confess, and his confessors would dread when he was on his way in their direction. He was a sincere, passionate monk, but there was a season in his life where he had begun to grow disenchanted with with the Roman church, and in this season, he decided that he was going to take a trip to Rome because he thought if he could go to Rome, see the relics, um, be take Mass in the historic churches, that that maybe his faith would kind of be revived. And so uh, it's kind of every monk's dream in this period to take a pilgrimage to Rome. So Martin Luther uh, heads to Rome. And he again, he's he's tired and frustrated, but hoping to be revived um, by kind of the historicity and beauty of, of Rome. Well, he gets there and he says that... Um, He's, he's totally turned off by what he sees. He says the priest going through mass or doing, trying to do communion, they said they sounded like auctioneers. They were just talking as fast as they could talk, trying to get through it. There was no sincerity in anything experienced. And there's just a lot of relics that clearly were not genuine, but were being used for financial gain. And so Martin Luther leaves Rome even more discouraged than he was when he arrived, but on his way back, he decided that he was going to stop and see a living saint. This living saint, her name was Anna Laminate, and she, we we know a bit about her life from history. There's, there's, There's some debate in some of the stories, but the gist is pretty much the same. Anna, as a young woman, was caught in some kind of sexual sin, in some kind of gross sexual sin. She was kind of... Um, tried for. And anyway, she she ends up in kind of a Christian, not an orphanage, but kind of of a scenario where she's being taken care of by the church. And it says that she, Anna, she um, went on what they would call in the period a hunger strike or a fast. She decides that she's going to fast. And as she's fasting, she says that um, she takes nothing to eat, but the body of Christ, the bread and the wine and if you remember the Catholic Church's view on, on on communion or is what you would call transubstantiation. So they believed that the the body and the wine literally become the 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 body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And so as she's fasting for this extended period, they believe that all she was consuming was literal body and the literal blood of Jesus and it went on and on and on and for years they said that she had had nothing to eat but the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus but her body was strong and they really believed that she had transitioned to some kind of angelic state because she was consuming the spiritual body of Jesus and she was celebrated as this great this great saint well, Martin Luther, leaving Rome, he decides he's going to stop and see her. Like, surely this living saint is going to stir up my faith again. Well, he walks in and he, and he sits down and he begins to talk with this young woman, Anna, and he asked her uh, kind of a simple question. He asked her, um, Do you long for heaven? And she said, Oh, no, I don't, I don't really know what heaven will be like, and my life's pretty good. And uh, no, I don't, I don't really long for heaven. And Luther said he stood up to leave the room and he knew immediately that the woman was a fraud. Because no one can gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. No one can can really meditate upon the blood of the Lamb shed for us on Calvary, put their focus on Christ, and then say, I don't really know about heaven. Like the deepest desire of the believer is to behold the Lamb fully. And Luther walked away and said, she's certainly a fake. Well, there was a... A, um, a duchess of Bavaria, it was actually the sister of the, uh, of the emperor who also was a discerning Christian woman and she knew right away that this woman was a fraud. And so she invited her to a monastery to come and speak and um, Anna came in the room. This is TMI, okay, but this is just the truth. So they said that Anna had had no food for years and because she had had no food for years, she didn't, forgive me, but this is just a story, she didn't use the bathroom in any way she just kind of was sustained on communion. And again, she celebrated. She had emperors, um, great men and women coming asking her for advice. She was celebrated as this prophetess. Well, the Duchess of Bavaria asked her to come to this monastery and they gave her a private room. But the Duchess of Bavaria was a wise woman and she put a little hole in the door. She made sure that she could see. And as soon as Anna went in, the Duchess was watching through the cracks of the door. I'm pretty confident this is illegal today, so don't try it. Um, but the first thing Anna did when she came into the room was she walked over to a plate of food and she started to eat. She sat down and used the bathroom and dumped it out of the window and went, went on pretending as if she was this supernaturally sustained woman. There, There is, I need you guys to hear me because I'm, I'm going to try to lobby a big a big thought before you. There is a true prophetic anointing. There is a true hand of God on a man or woman. There's a such thing as a man or woman, Gideon being filled with God. There's such a thing as, as God putting his hand on a man or woman and using them in their generation. But the true hand of God on a man or woman will always cause said man or woman to point to Jesus with everything they have. When you find a man or woman who's elevated in the church and their primary and final message is not, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you can bet that this is not anointing you're experiencing, but maybe adrenaline, maybe charisma, maybe gifting of man. I, w- I want to say, and this might sound a little bit harsh, but but forgive me. I want to say in the same way that Luther was disenchanted with Rome, as I watched the Christian landscape of, of the Western evangelical church, I'm growing more and more disenchanted with what we're doing in our churches. We went to a a conference recently with my pastors and my staff, and my executive pastor said, um, he's trying to be a good leader, and he says to all of our staff, um, what's one goal, one takeaway you want to get from this conference that we're going to? And they all said something like, you know, I want to be drawn to Jesus, or I want to learn this skill. I said, my one goal is to not to meet a single individual. I'm the, the biggest introvert around. I said, I don't want to shake anybody's hand. I want to sit in the corner alone. He said, that's not what you go to conferences for. You're supposed to network, Caleb, Um, one day. But we left. I sit in the corner alone. I don't shake hands. And we leave the conference. And some of the biggest speakers in the church today, you would know the names if I said. And I left thinking, man, great public speakers. I don't know, maybe some great practical skill sets that you can embrace. Maybe, maybe there was some self-development that could have taken place, but what I did not walk away going is I am so much more in love with Jesus because of what just happened the last three or four days. And I just want to say to you, church, quickly, that the church is not about your self-development. Man, pastors were not life coaches, The prophet has one aim to stand and say, behold, the lamb of God, look at his wounds, gaze upon the blood pouring down the risen, like seriously meditate upon the cross, give yourself fully to Christ. But we've we've twisted and turned so much so that that some of the greatest prophets and pastors and evangelists in our day, we celebrate and we applaud, but nothing they're doing is drawing us to Christ. Everything they're doing is lifting up man, promoting the glory of man. And the church ought to be disgusted, not enamored. And and I, I just I just I want to bring you a word from John 1, and I want to show you that scripturally speaking, John is the greatest prophet. Of the day, Jesus says there is no one born of man greater than John. John is the, the premier prophet. And the primary and pre- premier prophetic message that John the Baptist released in the greatest moment of his ministry is when he stands and sees Jesus strolling on the scene and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does the anointing of God fall on a man or woman for? Not to stand on a pulpit and say, Behold my gifting by God. The anointing of the Spirit falls on a man or a woman so they can stand with Peter in Acts chapter 2. After they've been baptized with the very fire of God, they stand and say, Jesus, you crucified. Repent and believe. Yes. But man, we're just doing so much self-help. And we're doing so much entertainment. And, and I don't say this with any arrogance in my heart. Man, I say this with tears in my eyes. We do, we're just into ourselves. And it's time that the church fall in love with the bridegroom again revival, revival cannot be, forgive me, revival cannot be celebrating the greatest preacher of our day coming to our town and we all come to a meeting and maybe we we hear a great speaker and maybe we even jump and shout. Revival must be the church turning her gaze, stepping aside, lifting her eyes to gaze at the Lamb of God. So let me read you the text and I just want to throw a few ideas before you. I won't talk too long. My wife's the talker, not me, okay? So I'll be quick. You catch her in the lobby. You have another story coming. John chapter one, verse 29 through 34. She rolled her eyes at me. (laughs) Verse 29. The next day, he being John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. One. From a historical perspective, I think we have an underdeveloped understanding of the significance of John the Baptist's ministry. Historically speaking, we read the New Testament and we miss how prominent and profound the Baptist was in his day. He prepared for ministry in the wilderness with great fasting. Remember, he he kind of comes out like Elijah, just blazing out of the wilderness alone, dressed like Elijah, with this In a day where where the Pharisees were obviously kind of the common leadership, the Sadducees were the the rich intellectual, they held most of the power. There were Herodians, these these Jews who kind of compromised with Rome. In a day with lots of options and lots of supporting religious tradition. In this setting of, of lots of kind of religious spirituality but no purity, out of the wilderness comes a man dressed like Elijah, Not not a Sadducee, not with power to wield, not with money stuffed in his pockets, overflowing out of his ears. Not like that, and and not a Pharisee, not trying to promote himself as this religious um, example. No, he just comes out with anointing and unction from the wilderness. He's been alone. Herod Antipas, the Gospels tell us that Herod Antipas, who eventually had the head of John the Baptist taken off, he tells us that Herod Antipas was fascinated with John. And and he liked to hear John speak. He had John put in prison, but he didn't want John killed because he was kind of enamored with him. He kind of was really interested. You remember at Herod, Antipas married his brother's wife. And the scripture says that John the Baptist rebuked him for taking his brother's wife because it was unlawful. The, The Greek and Mark's gospel, again, I've been teaching Mark for 18 years now, so well versed in this, the the Greek and Mark's gospel communicates that that John the Baptist didn't just confront Herod, uh, but he confronted him to his face, confronted him publicly and repeatedly. So Herod has his brother's wife and John the Baptist is calling the, the kind of governor out over and over to his face, meaning Herod came to hear him speak publicly, repeatedly. John's calling him for having his brother's wife. When Jesus began to minister after John the Baptist's murder, do you remember what Herod said? He said, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. When the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 comes to Ephesus for the first time in verses 1-7, through the scripture says that Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They say, into John's baptism. So when the apostle Paul, he carries the gospel into Gentile territory... Decades after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostle Paul on mission, carrying the gospel to the world where Jesus hasn't been preached. Remember Paul saying, I don't want to preach on any man's foundation. I want to preach to unbelievers where the gospel hasn't gone. When Paul gets to Ephesus and thinks, I'm about to get myself some unbelievers and preach this gospel, they had already heard of John. So John's ministry had been carried from Judea into Ephesus, even into a Gentile region. And so it's wild to think that we find that John's message and influence, it crossed even into Gentile territories. Josephus, um, who is a Jewish first century historian, mentions John the Baptist as opposing Herod. And it says that Herod took John the Baptist's head because he was afraid that John the Baptist was going to lead a political uprising. So even in first century history outside of the new testament we have the account of john the baptist i'm saying all this to say that he was incredibly prominent was the the most exalted prophet of the day he was the most in our day we would say he was the most successful man of god around he was the billy graham of his hour everyone loved to come and hear him speak his ministry was broad He impacted, even political leaders were impacted by it. It it transversed even into Gentile territories. Obviously, there's Old Testament prophecy concerning John the Baptist. Isaiah says that there will be one who will prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says that Elijah will be sent again before the day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus says this word was fulfilled in John Luke chapter 7, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, Jesus says, none is greater than John. No greater prophet, no greater anointing. I don't have the time to show you that in Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord says to John's father, Zechariah, this child will be filled with the Spirit from the womb. From the womb, John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit, clothed, anointed with the Spirit of God. So if we have the premier prophet filled with the Spirit from the womb, whom Jesus says there's no man born of a woman greater than John, if we have the premier example of anointing and proclamation and prophetic gift, then we can begin to ask the question, what is the primary prophecy released from John the Baptist? And I want to say again that the greatest prophecy that John the Baptist released is in John 1 when he watches Jesus stroll to the scene and he has thousands of people listening to him hanging on his every word. They're just longing to hear what this man has to say. And he stands in anointing and fervor and zeal and says, that man, behold him. Put your focus, your gaze on him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at him. Now every prophet we have, forgive me for being dramatic, but it must be my middle name. Every prophet we have says, look at me. Hear my latest dream. Let me release my vision. Let me tell you what's coming down the pipe. Where are the men and women of God with the spirit of God, the, the hand of God on them who stand and declare, look at him. Amen. Amen. The height of John's ministry with thousands receiving his message, his, his, many looking on him with admiration and enthusiasm, he stands to say, look at Jesus. Behold the lamb. On two occasions, actually, he uh, releases this word, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I could show you, I don't have the time to show you, that many of Jesus' own disciples were followers of John. There's a, there's a theory that even in John's gospel, he's showing us that he was in the crowd on the day when John the Baptist said this as a follower of John the Baptist, that John the Apostle was a disciple of John the Baptist who then heard John the Baptist say, he's the Lamb, and transition to follow Jesus there's there's good evidence in the new testament that even the apostles were first some of them disciples of John the Baptist filled with the spirit from the womb what is the anointing for what is the man in the wilderness for what is the purpose of God's hand upon a man or woman's life? What is the height and the depth of the Baptist's call? To look to the masses, to look to thousands of people, and to declare, to lift his voice and to shout, Behold the Lamb. I want to say there is no anointing of the Spirit There is no power. There is no renewal. There's no gift of the spirit. There's no no real move of God. There's no river of God flowing without the center of our proclamation being behold the lamb. Again, many claim prophetic clarity. Many claim prophetic vision and gifting. But we must ask the question, what are they drawing attention to? What are our eyes being drawn to focus on real renewal. I know you guys are talking about renewal this summer. Real renewal is when men and women come together, the congregation of the saints, and they allow their focus to be Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb. The Apostle Paul says, I preach nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. The Jews want signs, the Greeks want wisdom. Paul says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. Notice, I'll just show you a few things from the text and we'll hone in on that that phrase. Notice that John says, he ranks before me because he was before me. So he's pointing to Jesus and he says, he ranks before me, meaning he is superior to me. He is higher than me. He's first He's preeminent, that would be the language in Colossians 1. He's preeminent because he was before me. There John's clearly pointing to the eternal nature of Jesus, that that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, eternally co-equal with the Father. He says, he was before me, and he ranks above me. And the proclamation is clearly that he will for eternity be first. Again, you cannot be a man or woman. You can't be a church that really moves in the spirit without saying freely and openly, he is before us. Like unless you're willing to bow your knee and say, Jesus is Lord. He's our all and all. He's not a part. He's not a piece. He's all we have. All of our hope and strength and joy and peace and sustenance is in this man. I like you're not a church unless you can stand and proclaim that. Be a social club. You can't be a church unless you bow your knee and say, he is first. He ranks before me. John says, with all the eyes of Israel, again, political leaders, religious leaders, scholars, all watching John to listen to what John has to say. John says, he is superior, supreme, preeminent. Then John says, for this reason, I came. For this reason, I came baptizing. This was the purpose of my entire ministry. Now, if we back up again and see that John the Baptist has quite a prophetic narrative, even in the Old Testament, we can start to like kind of ponder, roll around. What is God doing through this man? Why does he dress like Elijah? Why does he live in the wilderness, eating strange things? Why is he so different and separate? There's all kind of theories that maybe he was raised by Essenes, his parents died young. Whatever went on, he's a strange man. Knows the voice of God. Knows the anointing of the Spirit. What for? What is it for? John says, for this purpose I came. There's one reason I came from the wilderness. I came baptizing thousands of you now have been baptized for What? So for this one reason I came, that he might be revealed. Is the one reason that you exist as a believer that Jesus be revealed through you? Is the one reason that your church exists, that your small groups exist, that your evangelism exists? Is the one reason your Christian education exists so that Jesus Christ be revealed? Or do you think of platforms and ministry platforms as opportunities to express your gifts and win the affection of people? Do you use this as an opportunity to exalt flesh? Or have you known the crucifixion of the cross? Can you say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives with me. Can you say with Paul, I'm crucified to the world and the world's crucified to me. I don't want her attention. Like I'm not after her affection. I'm not preaching, singing, teaching, leading, doing VBS or Christianity, I'm not doing this because I want to be seen as a great spiritual leader because I want to woo the crowds. You must learn to say with John, I decrease and he increases. So think again, John's disciples come to him and he says, don't you know now, this is after our text today, don't you know that Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than you? And John says, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices at the voice of the bridegroom. I must decrease, so he must increase. Like, think through the implications of what he's actually saying. He's saying, my ministry, the prominence that I have culturally in society, the fact that governors know my name, the fact that kings fear my voice, the fact that my name is spoken in every home, every table they ponder me, my influence, my reputation. churches, whoo, hallelujah. How how many churches, how many, how many ministries can a minister honestly stand and say, man, let my reputation decrease. I'm I'm not actually doing this to be seen. I don't, I don't really want your attention. I don't really want your affection. I'm not living with hopes of you all loving me. When a man or woman gets to the place where all they're living for is the affection of the congregations, they'll never stand with anointing and speak truth. John the Baptist says, this is all I've got. Like the, everything that I've, my life, the pinnacle of my life is saying, Jesus, have my influence. Saying to the crowds, don't follow me anymore. John says the entire person, look at Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if the entire purpose of of where we've let our Christianity go in the West, all we talk about is how to to have more comfort, how to be a better leader, how to be more successful in our church growth movements and strategies. We've articulated to a T how to help people be better people. And I think the gospel calls us to help people be better people by dying and looking at Jesus. Like it, it can't be about us. It can't be about our pastors. It can't be about our prophets. Man, I'm I'm trained, Pentecostal, charismatic. I'm as charismatic as they come. The charismatic movement cannot swoon over the latest prophet. We must swoon over Jesus. We must be in love with Jesus. There's no man or woman, teacher or gift that I will worship. Man, I worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And if your prophets, your preachers, your teachers, they can be on Sid Roth, TBN, CBN, I don't care. If they're not leading me to gaze deeper and longer and further upon Christ Jesus, I don't want their ministry, man. John says, my ministry has one aim, to reveal Christ. Now. If you follow me from there, if you're willing to take the premise that the greatest prophet known to the day, Jesus says, is John the Baptist. And if you'll follow me, that the the pinnacle of John the Baptist's ministry is releasing this word, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's take five minutes and examine what John the Baptist actually said. One, behold. Stop everything else you're doing. Sit down, be still, and let this man capture your attention. Don't let anyone else steal your focus. Don't let anyone else be the center of attention. The throne room of God revolves around this man seated at the right hand of God. Sit and with intentionality and purpose gaze upon him. Have you developed the discipline of gazing upon Jesus? Too many, especially in our movement, again, I'm, I am Pentecostal charismatic, again, too many are in our movement think we mature beyond the cross. We don't. You don't mature beyond the cross of Calvary. You mature into it. You learn to love it more and more and more and more, and you look at Jesus, the angels, the spirit. The seraphim, they look at Jesus from a different angle. Look at the father at another angle of glory and they fall in worship. Like all we do is look at him and learn more of him and discover again, what is the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus. You don't mature beyond the cross. We haven't out-preached the cross. We haven't talked enough about the cross. We mature into the cross. Behold, look at gaze upon the lamb. Now notice that John the Baptist, there, there are many ways that you could speak of Jesus, many different depictions of his identity. So John calls him later in the text, he calls him the bridegroom. And we could talk about Jesus for a while as the bridegroom, the kind of romancer of the church, the, the one who loves us in intimacy and, and longs for the day, which will be finally united with him in perfect union, bridegroom. But, but notice that the highlight of John's, the, the, the identity that John wants to point to is Jesus as the lamb, as the sacrifice. He's not, he's not he is the king, and he will be king eternally and forever, but John doesn't want to draw the attention to the kingship of Jesus. He wants to draw your attention to Jesus as the lamb. We in our church, um, we've been studying the Moravians for a season. The Moravians were these group of, um, this group of people who moved uh, from Moravia, Bohemia, into Germany, and they started this kind of Protestant movement. They were the first, what you would call the first Protestant missions movement. They, in a period of like 10 years from 1735 to 1745, they, originally there were only 300 people, and they sent 300 missionaries to every continent except for Antarctica in 10 years. This group of people, they lived in a town called Herrenhut in South Germany. This group of people, they established a prayer movement. A prayer chain is probably the better way to talk about it that lasted for 100 years. So grandparents participated in a prayer movement that their grandchildren carried forward. Like what a a beautiful community. So we've been looking at this community and going like, what is it that drove them? What led them to this place? And the more I studied and read and thought about the Moravians, John Wesley was... On his, on his way back from Savannah, when he, um, actually on his way to Savannah, when he encounters Moravians on the ship, there's a great storm and everyone's scared to death and John Wesley's biting his nails. But there's some Moravians who are just singing hymns like nothing's happening. Even their, wife, their wives and their children weren't scared. They just pressed on. John Wesley asked one of the Moravians, why aren't your children scared to die? And they said, our children love the lamb. They're ready to suck. Her. Just an incredible group of people to study. And as we studied the Moravians, the more surfaced that they they had this great focus on the lamb. And their kind of statement was, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. There were these two missionaries. You probably heard this story before. Sometimes people twist its historical accuracy, but I'll explain that to you if you have a question. There were these two missionaries who, they were going to St. Thomas and they were gonna preach the gospel to slaves because they had met a slave who came to Christ who told them that there were a lot of people who wanted to know Jesus. And so they decided the slave told him, I'm from St. Thomas. The only way you're going to get to St. Thomas is to sell yourselves into slavery. So these two young men laid in bed all night long, crying and wailing, thinking about these people on St. Thomas who didn't have the gospel, these Africans. And so they decided that they would sell themselves into slavery to preach the gospel to these Africans held in slavery on St. Thomas. Now where the story gets twisted historically is that the slave owners actually wouldn't buy them because they're white, but they did go with every intention of selling themselves. As they're leaving Germany on a ship, they cry out to the crowd. You can find this everywhere in history. They say, they say, the Lamb of God is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. So even as they're thinking about selling themselves into slavery to carry the gospel to Africans, these are, these are white Germans, saying we're going to sell ourselves into slavery to carry the gospel to these people. What sacrifice, what selflessness, what beauty, what purpose their kind of mantra is, the lamb is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. They had allowed this the, the revelation of Christ Jesus as the lamb to rise to the surface in their thinking. John doesn't say, behold the king of kings, although he will be the king of kings, obviously. John says, behold the lamb. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is the one Zechariah prophesied in chapter 12, the one who they would look upon whom they have pierced. And when you, I'll start to wind down in a second. When you, that's what every preacher says, right? It's five more minutes, five more minutes. Um, when you look in Revelation and you start to, you look at Revelation chapter five. And this is John the Beloved, right? He's caught up in his heavenly vision on the Isle of Patmos. And he's caught in this scene where he's kind of in the throne room and there's a scroll that can't be opened. And so, um, you remember, he begins to cry and wail. The scroll in Revelation is going to release the plans and purposes of God. Every time a new seal is opened, you know, they're the bowls and the trumpets. Um, but every time a seal is opened, there's a new purpose of God that comes forth. John begins to wail. He begins to cry because he says, No one is worthy to open the seal. But do you remember, then Jesus strolls onto the stream, onto the scene. But he comes onto the scene. John says, I saw him as a lamb, a lamb that had been slain. He said, I saw Jesus come to the scene as a lamb with wounds, as a blood-stained lamb, as a scarred lamb. And it said, the heavens began to sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, and honor to receive glory and blessing. That the throne room of God looked upon Jesus' entrance and said, worthy is the lamb. And this lamb, John says, he will take away the sins of the world. The cry of John the Baptist is there is atonement. There's a purification. There's a payment to be made by this blood. Look at the lamb. Imagine John the Baptist again preaching, saying, behold him. His blood will purify. His blood will wash. His blood will cleanse. Though our sins are as scarlet, his blood would make them white as snow. Look at him. His blood is going to wash you. It takes away, it literally strips us of our sins. Behold the lamb. He'll take away the sins of the world. Look on his wounds. Man, the early church used to talk so much about the wounds of Jesus. The church being birthed from the hole in his side. Find your life in the blood flow of the Messiah. Allow this death to captivate you, man. Look upon the cross, gaze upon the sacrifice. I think this is one of the reasons the church needs to recover the sacrament of communion where we receive the Lord's table and we allow the sacrifice of Jesus to rise to the center of our worship. Sam, go ahead and come for me. I'll start to wind down. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When's the last time you like sat in the morning with a cup of coffee before your scripture and just meditated upon the blood that was shed for you? If I could be a little bit critical again, it's just in me. Like how many in our movement spend all of their time on YouTube and on the Elijah's list and we're looking for the latest word to be released. Like, what if there was a word released by the greatest prophet, behold the lamb? What if the word's been released and you need to turn your eyes? I'm not negating the prophetic gift. Obviously the prophetic gift is valuable, but it's to edify the church, not to glorify man. I think we do well to like turn off YouTube and hit our knees and take communion with our spouse, share the Lord's table with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And to just chew on Jesus for a while. To remind our hearts of the fallenness of humanity, our own wickedness, our own frailty, our own weakness. To remember that there's only one solution, one hope. My hope is not in the giftedness of my preacher. My hope is in the shed blood of the lamb. My hope is not in the, the latest worship album being released or the, the anointing of the man or woman on TV. My hope is in the lamb of God. Men and women will fall. Why don't you stand to your feet and, and I'll just ask Sam to lead us for a moment. And I, if you would, I may, if you would, as we sing, I, I want to just lead us to to gaze upon Jesus for a minute. Paul in Ephesians one praised that the eyes of the heart of the church would be opened. That the, there's there's an eye to the soul. And I want to ask just for a moment that, that we would gaze upon the lamb and let the eye of your soul to look upon Jesus, to focus on him, to stop worrying about your shopping list and to start pondering the blood of the lamb slain, shed for you, slain for us.